Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. You begin to obey God in a whole new different attitude. Not because it's the law that will get you saved, not because you have to, but because there's a new desire in your heart. If you've been released or set free from something, you'd be a bit daft turning back to it, wouldn't you? When Jesus Christ brought freedom from many of the ritual practices of the Old Testament, some people couldn't let go. They wanted to turn back to their ritual ways instead of living in freedom. Strange, but true. Freedom has much to offer and it's worth exploring. So let's join Dr. Corbett now. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Paul's epistle to the Galatians has had a profound effect on many individuals and quite legitimately we could say it's had a huge impact on the way the western world and in particular the church has been shaped and fashioned what paul has to say about human dignity what he has to say about the special what we might call exceptionalism of you and i as sons and daughters of God, at least in potential. And I say in potential because when our forebears, uh, the first man and the first woman, plunged mankind from that point into what we now refer to as the fall, it corrupted our human nature. If you ever wonder why is there so much evil in the world, why are seemingly good people capable of so much horrible atrocities and evil and why do why do human beings treat each other like this why are there wars where bombs are dropped and the perpetrators of these disasters don't even know them how is this explained and the bible gives a very clear explanation that this world is tainted by this deadly spiritual disease called sin and it's sin that has corrupted every human heart and Christ has come. He has paid the price for our guilt and shame because of our willing cooperation with sin. And now he offers freedom, freedom from the curse of sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the eternal condemnation that sin deserves. And he's taken that upon himself. He was the only qualified person to do it he had to come from eternity to take our sin guilt and shame into that realm whereby it would atone for the sin guilt and shame of all people past present future into the realm of eternity that is and christ is, has offered this freedom by grace grace meaning you can't earn it you can't ever deserve it he offers it freely. And this is what the Apostle Paul preached to the Galatians, which in modern geographic terms is southern Turkey. And the Galatians readily accepted this, Paul tells us, when they saw the accompanying miracles that happened. There, was people, there were people healed. There were people who were tormented by demonic powers, who were set free. And even the Apostle Paul, when literally stoned to death and the elders gathered around him and prayed and, and he rose from the dead. He came back to life, he tells us. Well, the, sorry, Dr. Luke in the book of Acts tells us. The Galatians witnessed all these things, the dramatic effect that the 
the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit had in transforming lives. There is something about Christianity, though, that isn't just theory. It's not just history. It's something very, very practical. And this is where I want to introduce two two words that if you ever get to study biblical Greek and <clears throat> I don't I don't recommend that you do it because it's it's hard going especially if you do it like I did later in life it's it's really hard going but you get introduced to all these grammatical terms and one of them I'd never heard of what when prior to studying Greek is that language can have a mood and the mood it can either be indicative in other words it's just making a point or it can be imperative i'm going to talk about this in a moment because what we now see as we move into galatians chapter 5 is that we have paul giving the indicative that is he's going to make a series of statements that are shall we say indicating something in other words just stating a case it's just a statement here's a here's a set of information but Christianity doesn't just fill your head. It doesn't just give you a set of information. Uh, it's not data in, data out. It's not, you're, not a, you're not a computer where we're inputting data. You are a human being. And you are a human being who is a moral agent. And what the Apostle Paul has written to the Galatians is still true for us today. That when you accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, whom he promised, will come into your life fill your heart, transform your mind, and enable you to will, that is, to want to do certain things that prior to that, you may have had no intention of doing. And now we have this other mood. It's called the imperative, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So let me back up the truck a little bit here. I'm saying this to you because when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he wrote in Greek, not just Greek, Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E with a funny accent over it, Koine Greek. And this Koine Greek is the, what we might call the marketplace Greek. It was the common language spoken by the Greco-Roman world. It may not have been, certainly may not have been everyone's heart language for the Hebrews, the Israelites, their heart language almost certainly was Aramaic. You might think, well, I thought it was Hebrew. Well, the priests referred to things in Hebrew and quite possibly many of the Jews would have had a familiarity with Hebrew. But after they came back from the exile, their language was somewhat blended with the language of the Chaldeans and the Persians and so on. And it became this, this hybrid language known as Aramaic. And, and again, almost certainly, that's what Jesus spoke as his heart language. But in talking to Roman soldiers, in talking with foreigners, everyone used a common language. And that lang uh, lingua franca, that common language, was Koine Greek. People wrote in it. People could speak it, write it, read it. That was their language. This language is quite an ingenious language, really, when you, you look at it, because it was we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that it says, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And one of the just the right time factors is this very thing, Koine Greek. The world spoke, read, understood, 
a common language. That's amazing. I think the closest we've ever come to that in world history might be English today, where English is often a default commercial language today. But in the day of the Greco-Roman world, it was this language, Koine Greek, and it had this thing where it could express within the language in the verbs, that's the doing or stative word. Stative means uh, verbs like uh, I am, I was, I will be. Those are called stative verbs. Anyway, you, you talk to your, your children if they're studying English grammar, they'll, they'll tell you all about that. But Greek also had this thing called moods, and I've already mentioned the two main ones that I want to just touch on at the moment, because it does have a bearing in what we're about to look at right now in Galatians chapter 5. I've already flagged it for you. I've already told you that I'm going to be looking at two. And these, these two moods of Koine Greek verbs, boy, this, this is beginning to sound like a, a language lesson. And I guess it has to be because when we read our Bibles in English, we're reading a translation of this language. And sometimes the nuance that is enabled to come out in that language doesn't quite come out in our language. But as soon as I point it out, you'll begin to see it. But here it is. The genius of this Koine Greek language is, is that verbs could either they could express a mood either as, for example, indicative, it's stating something. You don't you can just take it as a point of fact or point of information. But then it also has this this capacity to put it into a different mood. And this demands a response. This is the mood called the imperative mood. It's, in other words, I, I could put it this way. Here's the information. Now, you're in, it's imperative that you do something with it. This is how we might distinguish it. So again, the indicative mood states something. It just shares a piece of information. But the imperative, in English, you can spot it whenever the English translators use this word, therefore. And what you're going to see in nearly all of Paul's epistles, the first half or possibly the first two thirds of what he is writing is mostly indicative. It's in the indicative mood. In other words, he's giving information. He's giving you facts. He's he's telling you things that he assumes you should know and possibly you don't. And then he will launch in with the now I'm not just giving you head knowledge. This has got to grip your heart. And it's got a result in how you treat others, how you approach Christianity, how you approach your place in the world. This is a big deal. So let's pray. Father, now as we open your word into Galatians chapter 5, I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be able to translate into a language that perhaps we could understand more clearly in what Paul was saying to the Galatians some 2,000 years ago. And Lord, as we look at both of these really technical things, the indicative mood and the imperative mood, that Father, you help me to strip it down, make it a little bit more simple so that people can understand it, so that we're able to see Paul is saying, I've given you this information, but it's not just for your head. This is for your hands and your feet. This is how you are to interact with others. This is how you are to interact with each other in the name of God. And so, Lord, now I pray, hide me behind your word and let your word ring forth into people's souls. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're reading. 
from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul, we know, has established this consistent theme throughout the epistle, the theme of freedom. So he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So you can see, Paul has spent the first four chapters mainly in what we might call the indicative mood. He's made his case. Here's what you need to know. But now what he's beginning to do is he's bringing this to a, a point of action, a call to action. And this is where we can see that Paul has said that the grace of God has freed the believer in Christ from the overbearing, the insurmountable, the unattainable requirements of the Torah, the law of Moses. And now what he's saying, because Christ has done this, there is an imperative. And I hope you picked up that word, therefore. And the therefore is that Christ has set you free. So don't submit again to the very thing that these Judaizers, these, these Jewish teachers who want to tell you Gentiles, you, in order for you to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first and keep all of the laws of Moses. Don't do that. You, I know you tried and, and you failed just like I did all my life. We can't keep this. It will just, it'll just condemn you back into slavery. And you shouldn't have to be there once Christ has set you free. Once you realize that Christianity is something Christ has given you as a gift and he gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's saying. Don't submit again to that yoke of slavery. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, I think we need to just pause here for a moment and just consider why was circumcision such a big deal to the Jews? Why did the Judaizers, these Christians, they were Jewish Christians who believed that, no, we still have to keep this. We still have to keep our cultural hallmark of being Jews by, by having our sons circumcised and by insisting that our daughters cover their heads and do all these other things that the law requires that, that women do. Why was circumcision so important? In the first century, it was so important because it was seen as an essential requirement of obedience to God. Now, I could, I could point to you to all the, the literature that was circulating around this time that had begun to come about after they returned from the exile. So we're talking 2nd century BC, 1st century BC. There's, all, there's just a host of information where people, Jews, were making this case. If you want to be a true Jew, don't compromise like the Gentiles do. And, and here's the first thing you've got to do. Men, you've got to be circumcised. This was a big deal. It gave them a sense of identity. It distinguished them from non-believers, from pagans, people who were outside of a covenant relationship with God. So circumcision was a big deal. I don't think we want to just lightly, uh, with a wave of the hand, just think, oh, yeah, well, of course, it makes sense what Paul's saying now. We have to understand just how passionate people believed this 
and the radical transformation that took place when Christ came and the Apostle Paul was sharing these things. And eventually it would take a few decades, more or less, for Jewish Christians to understand, I don't have to be a Jewish Christian. I just have to be a Christian. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obliged to keep the whole law. You can't just pick and choose bits of it and say, these are the really important bits. Paul's saying, you've you got to keep it all. And, and he here's a bit of a pun when he says, if you do this, if you insist on this is the hallmark of being made right with God, being circumcised, you are severed, that is cut, which is what circumcision was. It was a cutting of the flesh. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, we use this expression to fall from grace as if someone has you know, fallen from grace because they've now sinned. But that's not falling from grace. When we read what Paul is saying here, where that expression came from in the English language, this is where it originates, it's not falling into sin. In fact, if you fall into sin and God doesn't punish you, you've now fallen into grace. You've fallen into grace, not from grace. Falling from grace is to fall into legalism. It's to fall into this conceit that you are now trusting your own ability to keep the laws of God that no one apart from Christ has been fully able to keep, that you can do this all by yourself without God's help or without his grace. And of course, that is the height of arrogance and, dare we say it, idolatry, because it's really self-trust. And this is what Paul's saying. If you are trusting your circumcision... <laughs> to make you right with God, then you're trusting yourself. You are severed from Christ. And Paul goes on, for through the Spirit, by faith, that is by trust, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, when you trust Christ, you, you will not be sinless. You will not be perfect. But the day will come when in the resurrection, you will receive the righteousness that God offers so that you and I will be incapable of sin. But that day is looked forward to by faith, not in this life, but when we receive our resurrected, glorified bodies and we are perfectly united with Christ. Paul says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, here's an indicative and an imperative, and that is faith working through love. Faith, the indicative, trust Christ. The imperative, now you're going to love one another in a new way. Verse 7, you are running well, he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, verse 8. A little leaven, uh, sorry, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9. And I have perfect confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, Paul is is making some pretty strong statements here. Paul is going to go on to say that there was a claim that he was, and he's already addressed this partially, that he was preaching 
a different gospel to Jews than he was to Gentiles. In fact, when he was with Jews, the claim was he was just he was telling Jews, yeah, of course, you've got to be circumcised. Of course, circumcision is what's necessary for salvation through Christ, of course. But when he preaches to you Gentiles, he tells you something that's not quite true. And Paul is saying, if that's the case, if that's really what I'm doing, then why are the Jews persecuting me because I'm not preaching about circumcision? Ah, good point. Paul is making this point. So what we have here is in verse 11, Paul is saying that he is being treated in this way. He says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed, Paul says. So Paul mocks those who were teaching circumcision about cutting of the foreskin. That made anyone, particularly a man, more righteous. It's an absolute mockery, he says. You can't, you can't do that. You can't say that if, if you get a piece of your skin cut off, you're now more righteous than you were before. And here comes the mockery. And Paul is essentially saying, well, if that's the case, asks Paul, <laughs> then why not just cut more off than just your foreskin and become the sarcasm, the paraphrased sarcasm, super righteous, Paul is saying. He says this in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That is, well... Cut your entire genitals off if that's the case. Of course, this is crazy. It is crazy. And Paul is making this point. Yes, it's crazy. Of course, it's crazy. I'm not at all suggesting anyone should do that. I'm just highlighting to you how absurd it is that anyone would even suggest it, that you could become righteous or more righteous by having skin cut off. And today, we, we might see that people are adding all kinds of rules to how people should live out their Christianity. And again, we could point out that this is absurd. Of course it's absurd, and Paul would probably agree. I've been in churches, I've been invited in churches, and I've been a guest in churches where they have certain rules where it's not necessarily stated, but it becomes pretty apparent that unless you do this or, or or keep these rules, then you're not a true Christian. And we might call some of those groups uh, exclusive. And I'm thrilled when people come out of those groups, they're often referred to as cults, and they come to a knowledge of the truth. This is such a, a joy to be able to see people. And here Paul is trying to bring the Galatians back into truth. So he's given these imperatives, a couple of them at least here already, and now he's going to come to what I might call the grand imperative. You see, Paul is not just saying, I just want you to get this doctrine right. I just want you to get this theology right. What I want you to get right is your relationship with Christ, that it's grounded in trust. It's grounded in your appreciation of what he's done for you and now you understand your obligations to him. I'm asking you to keep, yeah, I'm asking you to keep certain rules and laws in the sense that Jesus has done something for you. And once you get it, you'll never be the same again. 
So he says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom. So here's kind of the bookends of this section. This is how he starts off. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So you can see now, Paul is responding to those critics who, who are saying, Yeah, but Paul, if you preach grace, then people won't keep any of the law. They'll just, they'll just live however they please. They won't live a holy life. And Paul's <laughs> far from it. Absolutely far from it. When you experience the grace of God, you begin to obey God in a whole new different attitude. Not because it's the law that will get you saved. Not because you have to. But because there's a new desire in your heart. He says here, don't give opportunity for the flesh that is not every desire you have will be either right or holy some desires that we have need to be put to death paul is saying and he says the the best way to to respond is to he says love one another and how do you love one another through love serve one another so he, he will make several points now about here's what you do once you get this. Once you get it, that God has done this for you, you didn't deserve it, you can't earn it, this is how you are now to live. He says this in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and this one word is a statement. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And I know that there are people that will say, aha, so it starts with me. <laughs> and the whole point is actually, Paul is saying, uh, no, it doesn't. It's not all about you. It's about how you can serve the other. And how do you do that? He's going to give some very practical guidance here on how you can serve one another. And so we see here, he says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, obviously with your words, tear people down with how you talk about them and talk to them. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So you can see here what Paul is saying. This is how Christians are to live. Some people think that grace means they've got a free ticket of excuse. God will just excuse their sin. He will excuse their blatant rebellion. There are Christians who kid themselves that they can commit adultery and it's okay because God understands that, well, they don't really love the one they're married to and God has now brought someone into their life that they really do marry, uh, sorry, really do love and therefore they are married in the spirit. I've heard this kind of nonsense. <laughs> and Paul here is saying, that's of the flesh. Don't give opportunity to the flesh. There are men who watch pornography thinking it's of no consequence. They're giving opportunity to the flesh. They're feeding their flesh their wrong desires. We're made to be sexual. We're made to be sexual and we're made to be sexual within marriage because being sexual is a part of who God has made us because it reflects him as creator and he's given that same power to us to procreate. People want to abuse it. 
They want to just take the desire and, and abuse it. And Paul says, don't do that. Instead, serve one another in love. Our freedom, the grace that God has given us, enables us to live truly holy lives because we have been filled with God's love. And Paul has said over and over and will continue to say in the rest of this chapter, we've been filled with his spirit. We have been so filled with his spirit that it results in certain fruit, we will see. But let's have none of this nonsense that when you give your life to Christ, nothing changes. It is nonsense. We have been transformed by Christ, by God's love and by his spirit. And what do we do with it? We serve one another. We serve one another and we do not destroy the other. I want to give a word of wisdom to all those who are part of a church where perhaps you're struggling with someone in that church. Perhaps they've offended you in some way. Perhaps they've said something or perhaps they've not said something you wanted them to say. Perhaps they've done something that offended you. It's my experience as a pastor that oftentimes people who take the greatest offence at things that someone else has done are dealing with someone who has no idea that they've offended you. No idea. And in fact, oftentimes what they've done is very innocuous, but you've taken it in a way that you've made it offensive. And that, and that offence becomes, shall we say, rose-coloured glasses that you take with you throughout your relationship with any Christian. You're always sensitive to this. I, I heard Pastor Trevor Chandler, someone whom I loved dearly as a man of God who had a great influence in my life. And I remember as a teenager hearing him as a what I consider to be a great preacher and he said once that he had someone come up to him and say you have offended me and he said uh how did i offend you i saw you the other day in town and i waved to you and you didn't wave back uh i'm sorry i i didn't see you pastor chandler said oh you did so and you willingly chose to not respond it was rude and i was offended and he said, I can absolutely assure you, I didn't see you. And if I had, I would have responded. He gave another similar example where he said someone walked past him expecting him. And this was again in the street outside the, the church, ex expecting him to say, hello, how are you? And, and apparently he didn't. And he said, but did you ask me? Did you say hello to me? And how was I? And they said, no, I was expecting you to do that. And I was offended that you didn't. And he said, well, how about this? Maybe I was preoccupied with something else. This can happen, you know. And maybe I wasn't in the zone where I should have been. But do me a favour. Next time that happens, say that to me first. <laughs> Get my attention so that I can be sure to be courteous. Now, I'm just giving these what might be considered trivial examples of how people can become susceptible to not doing what Paul is saying here, which is to serve one another in love and not to destroy each other. You see, we live in a world where people 
live a dog-eat-dog, where people, in order to get ahead, they think they have to destroy someone else or harm someone else. It shouldn't be like that among Christians in the church, should it? Let's pray. Father, help us to live out these grand imperatives of serving one another, of loving each other, of doing what your word commands. I pray, Father, where there has been hurt, where there has been offence, where there has been disappointment, that, Lord, you would grant to each of us the grace of forgiveness. Help us to forgive as we should. Help us to do what we should so that, Lord, we cannot give the enemy a foothold in our life or in our church. And Father, I pray for those who are struggling with guilt, condemnation and shame. Father, as they look for relief in a bottle, as they look for relief in a tablet, as they look for relief in a needle or on the internet, the God, you would turn people to you, the one who truly gives freedom, the one who truly forgives, the one who truly gives a fresh start. I pray, Lord, for each one now who really wants to be set free from that sin that has gripped their life. Set them free, Lord, in Jesus' name. And Father, for the, for the one who's listening now, who's never quite surrendered to you, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to them in dreams, in people who come across their paths, and help them, Lord, to recognise that you're on their case because you love them. And I pray, Father, that we might know the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Galatians Part 11 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, our freedom enables us to love and serve others and not to destroy each other. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. And we look forward to joining you again, same time next week, for another Finding Truth Matters. Music